to start today by saying a couple things as we have been talking about this idea of finding purpose and knowing what, pur- what our purpose is over the last, oh man, it's been a while now. Uh, but as we continue on with this, uh, having a conversation with somebody this week about just teaching and preaching and, and uh, its purpose, uh, I, I don't ever want to be guilty of just taking an idea or a thought and presenting it to you as fact for you to believe and accept regardless of what it is. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, if something like God has a purpose for you and you need to be willing to follow him in order to find that, something like that, I want us to be able to understand why, um, why that's important, um, why that's true. And uh, so today I want to, to answer some of these questions that maybe we've been having because, you know, I'll be honest, if, if, if we struggle with that idea of what is my purpose, how do I find that? Uh, if we struggle with, does God really have what's best for me? Uh, can I really trust him uh, to show me what his purpose for me is? If we struggle with that, then we can be hesitant about going forward, and anything else that we might say practically about how to find that purpose doesn't matter uh, because we're not willing to just accept the basic fact that God does have a purpose for us, and then we can follow it. And uh, so today, I, I want to talk a little bit and answer some of these questions. You know, why should we recognize uh, that it's God's purpose for us and not our own? You know, we, we said it's his purpose, it's not our purpose. So why should we recognize that? Why, why is that so important for us to understand? Why is it so important for us to make sure in our mind that's how we're thinking, that it's his purpose and not our own? Uh, why should we be willing to embrace that? Why should we be willing to be engaged in, in, in his purpose and, and not seek our own purpose and not be focused on what we want to do? Why should we, why should we be willing uh, to follow him to find his purpose? Why should we be yielded? Why should we be willing to lay aside, to sacrifice maybe some things that we would like to do uh, for a moment so that he can lead us into his purpose? Why should we be willing uh, to do that? And so uh, look at Esther chapter number four today. Esther chapter number four and start at verse number eight. Esther chapter 4 and verse number 8, the Bible says, and this is, uh, we mentioned last week, just as review, that Haman has uh, gone to the king because he's mad that Mordecai won't bow to him. And so as a descendant of the Malachites and probably in a very long, drawn-out plan and plot for revenge, Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And so Haman, or Mordecai, excuse me, finds out about that. He and all of Israel are distraught because a decree, a public service announcement has gone throughout the entire empire that on this date and at this time, an entire race of people are going to be destroyed. And so 
naturally, Mordecai and all the Jewish people are very upset about this. Esther in the palace, meanwhile, is a little shielded from this. She doesn't really know what's going on. And when she hears that Mordecai is in the gate, which was his position, and he was sitting there and he was distraught and he was grieving and he was crying and he was in sackcloth and ashes, that was a little embarrassing to her because I'm sure people knew that they were related. And so Esther sent down to Mordecai and said, what's going on? She tried to be a blessing to him. She tried to, she tried to help him. And then Mordecai sent back to her and told her the entire story of what Haman was planning on doing and what she needed to do as a result. And so we pick up in verse number 8. And the Bible says, also he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him. So you remember Esther sends one of her uh, assistants, one of uh, her people to go talk to Mordecai, and when he does, Mordecai gives him a copy of what Haman has decreed, that all of the Jewish people are going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped out on this day at this time, and he says, I want I want you to take this back and I want you to show it to Esther and I want you to tell her that she has to be the one to do something about this. Look at verse number nine. And Hatash came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And Esther spake unto Hatash and gave him command, uh, com gave commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And so uh, Mordecai tells Esther, look, you're the one that has to do something about this. You're the one that needs to go to the king. And Esther says, well, hold on a second, okay? Because everybody knows that there's one thing that you don't do with the king. There's a big no-no. You don't go to the king unless you've been called. If you go to the king without being called for, without being summoned, then he's going to put you to death unless he's feeling really nice and he extends the golden scepter to you and allows you to approach his throne. This was a, a life-threatening uh, request that Mordecai was making to Esther. And Esther was naturally very hesitant about it. So look what Mordecai says. And they told the Mordecai... Esther's words, verse 12, verse 13, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Or if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Mordecai sends back to Esther and says, uh, Esther, this may be a part of your purpose. This may be the reason that you are where you are. And when Mordecai comes to Esther with this request, this is, this is a big disruption in her life. 
This is, this is a revelation of what her purpose just might be. And we talked last couple of weeks about those mile markers, those signs that God is leading us in his purpose, even when he is not evident, even when he is not speaking. And we saw the spiritual warfare that they were going through. We saw the opportunity that Esther had to bless Mordecai. And we saw that because of that, then she was going to be called to take a step of faith. And Mordecai gives Esther that opportunity to take a step of faith to be able to follow God's purpose. But this was a big deal because this was a huge, huge disruption in the plans that Esther had. You think about this. Mordecai is at the very least possibly getting Esther to give up her reputation. She's, she's going to go to the king without being called. Nobody does that. He's asking her to do that. At the very least, give up her reputation. At the very least, give up everything that she has gained. Even, at the very least, give up everything that has been given to her in the position that she was in. And at the very worst, he was asking her to give up her life. That was what Esther was being asked to do as she was to pursue her purpose. Now, uh, some of you have may have gone through uh, a remodel. Anybody ever, you've been through a remodel on your house? Remodeled your house, okay. Um, I don't know, is, we've been through some, uh, I've lived through some, uh, nothing major, and uh, I've helped on some, uh, nothing major, but I do know this, okay, when you're remodeling your house, it can get messy. Those of you that, that have had that happen before, or those of you that that's a part of your work or your, your life, uh, you know that it gets messy, and you've got to rip out cabinets, and you've got to tear up carpet, and you've got to knock down walls, and there's dust, and there's garbage, and there's all kinds of mess, and it's, it's not a very pleasant place to be. Um, anybody have to move out? Those of you that anybody have to, to move and not live in their house when they were getting a remodel? Yeah, it's just, it's not a pleasant place to be. Now, Reuben, you, you do this. Now, I know you do a lot of install. You don't do, do you, you do remodel or, so you do a little bit of both. Okay, if I were to come to you and say, Reuben, I want a remodel of my house, okay? Uh, let's say my kitchen. I want to remodel my kitchen because that's what you do well at, right? Okay. Uh, I want to remodel my kitchen, all right? I want new cabinets. I want new floors. I want new doors. I want new lights. Uh, I want new, I want everything, okay? But here's the catch. I want you to leave the old stuff in. <laughs> if you wanted to get a remodel, okay, and you, you made a request like that, okay? If somebody made a request like that, you're just going to laugh at them and not take them seriously. Yeah. Because if you're going to remodel something, the old stuff has to come out. The new stuff has to replace the old stuff. Um, I think a lot of times we want God to show us his purpose for our lives, uh, but we don't want him to touch any of the existing details, we want him to show us what, our pur what his purpose is, what he has for us, but we don't want him to disrupt anything the way it is. We, 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 don't, we, we want to remodel, but we don't want him ripping out any of the old stuff. Um, we, we don't want to, and, and maybe it's because we don't understand, or we don't want to accept some of the basic truths of who God is 
and why he can do what he can do and why he wants us to do what he wants us to do. And so I think as we look at the story of Esther, we see Esther given a, an opportunity to be engaged in God's purpose for her. But in this moment, and understandably so, she's hesitant because she likes things the way that they are. She doesn't want things to get ripped up. And so we need to look at why Mordecai could ask Esther, Esther, this is why you're here. You're at the palace, that famous, those famous last words, for such a time as this. And so as we think about our own lives, why, when God says, I've got a purpose for you, ought we to be willing to allow him to do what he wants us to do? And so let's pray, and then we'll jump right into this. Father, we thank you for your opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. God, I pray that you'd speak to us in this place. We do ask that you'd please be with those that are not able to be here, sickness and work and Pray that you keep them safe and bring them back to, uh, Lord, uh, our midst and the opportunity to fellowship together again. Father, I just pray that you please uh, quiet our hearts and our minds in this time. Help us to be focused on you. Help us to look to you and your purpose for us. And Father, I pray that you please help us to be willing, uh, Lord, to, to follow no matter what it costs, no matter what it means no matter where it leads. Father, we love you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So I want to start by giving us a couple of statements uh, real quick to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. And so number one on your handout there, first of all, God owns everything over which he rules and he rules over everything. So God owns everything over which he rules and he rules over everything. Let me give you a couple more statements to go along with that one. First of all, God is the creator. We know that. God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Plain and simple. God is the creator. Uh, we know Genesis 1.26 says, and God said, let us make man. So God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 26, we know that God created man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every uh, thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so." God is the creator. God has created. God spoke everything into existence out of nothing. God formed man, you and I, uh, out of the dust of the ground by his hands and breathed into us the breath of life. God is the creator. And so, because God is the creator, God is the owner. Because God is the creator, God is the owner. He made it. And so because of that, he rules or he owns it. It is his. 
Psalm 50 in verse number 7 says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I will not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. But God said, I am the creator. I have created all of this. I have made it all. I spoke it into existence. I formed it uh, from the dust of the ground with my hands. And so because of that, it is mine. It is mine. God is the owner. But then, as we learned a few weeks ago, God is creator. God is the owner. God is the ruler. God is the ruler. We read in Psalm 95, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, and it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so God is the creator. God made everything, and because of that, God owns everything, and we know that God rules over everything. And so that's important. That's, that, that is basic truth. That is basic Bible knowledge that we have got to understand and accept if we're going to be able to go on in finding God's purpose and knowing God's purpose for our life. So, number one, God owns everything over which he rules, and he rules over everything. Number two, God is the owner of your life, your opportunities, your success, and your ultimate obligation is to him. God is the owner because God is the creator. God is the owner because God is your creator. He is the owner. He is God. He is the owner. Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 says, Promotion cometh not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, comes from the north, comes from above, but God is the judge. He put it down one and setteth up another. And so God is the owner of our life, our opportunities, and our success. Uh, Daniel understood this in Daniel 2 and verse 20. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. For he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. God is able as creator, as owner, and as ruler. He is the one that gives opportunities. He is the one that gives success. And because of that, he is the one that gives purpose. Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, 
and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Our ultimate obligation is to him. God has created all things. He is the owner of all things. He is the ruler of all things. And because of that, our obligation as his creation is his. It, it, it goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, that God is sovereign. That God is in control over all. That God is ruling, that God is touching, that God has his hand over all. Uh, we have nothing of ourselves. All that we have and all that we are is because of him. Don't be naive enough to think and don't be foolish enough to think that who you are today is only because of you. Don't believe the lie of the world of being a self-made man or woman. Because any opportunity that you have, any, any uh, uh, success that you have, the life that you are breathing right now, the heartbeat that exists within you right now is because he allows it. He is the creator. He is the owner. He is the ruler. And our ultimate obligation is to him. And so, let's transition for a moment, because if he's the owner, what does that make me? It makes me his, yes. But if he is the owner of me, and he is the owner of the opportunities that I have, and he is the owner of the success that I have, and he is the owner of the life that I have, well, he has given it to me. So that makes me the manager. He is the owner. I am the manager. I am just taking care of what he has given to me. This body, I am just taking care of what he has given to me. Uh, the uh, opportunity that I have to serve in ministry here, I'm just taking care of what he has given to me. Uh, the opportunity to be married to my wife, I'm just taking care of the opportunity that he has given to me. And here's what's important to remember about being a manager for the owner. You got to do what he wants you to do with it. You got to do what he wants you to do with it. See, the Bible word for a manager is the word steward. Now, I don't have this for the screen, but take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. The Bible word for manager is steward, and it means manager or overseer. The Bible is very clear about what we are to be as managers or stewards. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, excuse me, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be bound faithful. It's required. It's sought out. It's looked for. It's in the job description as someone who is supposed to be a steward or a manager for another that he be faithful, that he be trustworthy, that he does what the owner expects him to do with what he has given to the manager. So a steward has one job. And it's to care for what the master gives him the way the master intends for him to do it. A steward is not supposed to necessarily have his own ideas, although I believe if that supports the purpose and the plan of the owner, then that's a good thing. But it's not to go off in a different direction. It's not to do his own thing. It's not to make it his own thing. It is to only do what the master wants him to do. A steward's one job, a manager's one job is to carry out the master's purpose. 
That's the job of the manager. That's the job of the steward. Uh, when, when you read the parable of the steward, and we won't take time to read it, uh, but in Matthew 25, the parable of the servants, the, the, uh, the uh, master is the rich man's leaving town, and uh, he calls in his three servants, and he says, I'm going to give you talents, and, and he used Jesus' exam, the example of money, but he gives them something, and he says, I want you to occupy, I want you to do what I would do with it if I was here to do something with it. I want you to do, I want you to fulfill my purpose for what I'm giving you. And so the one guy that has five, he goes out and he makes five more. And the guy that has two, he goes out and has two more. And the guy that has one, we know he doesn't do anything with it. And so when the master comes back, he looks at the one with five that made five and said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When he sees the one with two that made two more, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When he looks at the one who only had the one that the master gave back to to him, he says, thou wicked and slothful servant. Why? Because the steward didn't follow the master's purpose. It didn't matter what they did. And it, uh, listen, it didn't matter if they'd been given five. It didn't matter if they'd been given two. And it didn't matter if they'd been given one. If they followed the master's purpose, if they did what he wanted them to do with what he had given them, they would have heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It didn't matter how many they made. It didn't ha matter how much they had been given. But when they followed the master's purpose, they were considered faithful. And you and I have been given opportunity. You and I have been given success. You and I have been given a purpose. And God says, I want you to follow my purpose. I want you to carry out my purpose. I'm the owner. I'm the creator. I'm the ruler. And I have given you purpose. Now your choice is whether or not you're going to follow it. And that leads us to number three. Number three, God calls us to give ourselves to him daily as a sacrifice for his purpose and calling. God calls us daily. This is a part of his purpose. This is a part of fulfilling the owner's purpose as a steward, as a manager. Uh, Esther was being asked to sacrifice a lot. When she got back word from Mordecai of what was going to happen to the Jewish people, and then he said, you're the one that needs to do something about it. You're the one that needs to go to the palace. You're the one that needs to go speak to the king. Again, she was being asked to do a whole lot. Uh, she was being asked to sacrifice a whole lot. She had just gained, as an orphan Jewish girl, she had been given power, and she'd been given prestige, and she'd been given influence, and she'd been given a cushy, soft life that she'd probably never experienced before, and now she is being asked to give it all up, possibly, to sacrifice it all for the purpose that God had for her. Romans 12, 1, it's a familiar verse to us, but Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God's purpose and calling require that we give ourselves to him daily as a sacrifice. God's purpose requires that we give ourselves daily to him as a sacrifice. Uh, that verse starts out with, therefore. I beseech you, therefore. 
And so we look back at what Paul has written before this in Romans 1 through 11, and it's an entire, it's the Romans road. It's salvation. Paul says, because of what God has done for you, because of his love for you, because of his salvation, because of his redemption, because of his deliverance, he said, I, I think it's only fitting. I think it's only reasonable, he says. It's required. It's expected that you give yourself as a sacrifice. Esther was telling, or excuse me, Mordecai was telling Esther, hey, Esther, you have been given a whole lot. You have been given this position of power. You have been given this opportunity for influence. You have been given this closeness to the king for a reason. You have to use that blessing and sacrifice it for others. Now, what's awesome about what that verse says in Romans is that Paul says we're to be a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, which is the opposite of a dead sacrifice, in case you were wondering. Um, a living sacrifice is one that is continually given. A living sacrifice is one uh, that continues to bring life to others. It continues to accomplish its purpose. It's not over after one time. It's a continual sacrifice. I think sometimes we limit our view of sacrifice, and we think that it's something that we need to give up, or it's something that we need to not do, which that's part of it. We think of sacrifice, and we think of something dying, and life being over. But I want you to think about it from the standpoint of being described as a living sacrifice. That it might be loving others. That it might be just sharing with others. That it might be a sacrifice that is praising and thanking God even when we don't feel like it. Uh, if we're all honest, there was probably some time within the last week that we didn't feel like praising or thanking God. As the power was out. I know I was, if, if nobody else admitted my hands up, uh, as the power was out and, uh, you know, I'm reading my Bible by candlelight. Uh, felt like it was in the 1600s. Um, but that might be a sacrifice. Uh, extending mercy to someone else. Uh, expend, extending grace to someone else who doesn't deserve it. Showing love to someone else that you've never met before. Whether in word or thought or action. Why? Because those are truly, if, if Paul is calling us to sacrifice ourselves, that ye present your bodies yourselves as a living sacrifice, then, then doing something even when we don't feel like it is putting ourselves aside. And it's doing what God expects. Uh, we are, and I think this is the statement there, yes. We are modeling our lives after Christ when we intentionally live with a spirit of sacrifice. We didn't have time to read it, but I've got a bunch of verses that Jesus gave himself. And I love that about Jesus, that he does not ask us to do something that he has not already done. He asked us to give ourselves a sacrifice, and he did it already. He did it in the ultimate way, in the ultimate expression of sacrifice on the cross. And he says, because of my example, I want you to give yourself a living sacrifice. And we are modeling our lives after Christ when we intentionally 
live with the spirit of sacrifice. And then lastly, number four, God gives each of our lives value. God gives each of our lives value, but we determine our usefulness by our willingness to follow him. God gives each of our lives value, but we determine our usefulness by our willingness to follow him. Um, can I say that that first point, going all the way back to the beginning, when we said God is the creator, that gives you value. That the almighty God would form you, you, in your mother's womb, as the Bible says in Psalm 139, with his hands and shaped you and made you exactly the way that you are and then breathed into you the breath of life. You have the breath of God. God gave you CPR. You have the breath of life from God that gives you life. That gives you value. But then God doubled down. Because when you were far from God, when you were, the Bible says, the enemy of God, Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again so that you could be restored. Those two things give you value. Those two things determine your worth as a person, as a creation of God, and as a child of God if you have trusted him. Those two things give you value. However... Just because something has value does not make it useful. If you have a $100 bill in your pocket, I do not right now. If you have a $100 bill in your pocket, it has value. You could do a lot of things with a $100 bill. You could buy a lot of things with a $100 bill. You could buy lunch for all of us in here. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on, anyway, uh, it has a lot of value. But here's the thing if it never gets used, if a $100 bill sits in your pocket till kingdom come, while it has value, it was pretty useless. Because it does not become useful, the value is not fully realized until it is engaged in its purchasing power of buying something. And you and I have value because we are created by God. And you and I have value because we have been saved by the blood of Christ through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. But if we and allow him to fulfill his purpose through us, then we're not very useful. We're not very useful. Uh, until we sacrifice our own attempts at finding purpose in obedience and willingness to follow him, we'll never know the full extent of our usefulness, our purpose. The Bible says in uh, Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will, God's purpose for you is good, it is perfect, it is acceptable, it is complete, but without sacrifice in verse number one, we'll never know it. We'll never experience it. We'll never be able to approve, to be able to understand the purpose for God. Let me give you that last statement. The Bible says a Christian, or Bible, this is not a Bible. Uh, a Christian life that isn't used for God's purpose is a life poorly spent. 
It's a life poorly spent. Now, I'm out of time right now. I want to keep going, but, and we'll maybe conclude this a little bit next week, but understand who the owner of your purpose is. God's the creator. God's the owner. God's the ruler. He is the one that gives purpose, and we have to understand I am a manager. I am a steward. God's given me purpose. Now I need to do with that purpose what he wants me to do with it. Mm-hmm.